there is a well-funded, well-organized industry that has no other goal than to manufacture fear against Islam and Muslims. Welcome to Canon Insights. I'm your host, Sahil Badruddin, and today we have with us Dahlia Mugahid, Director of Research at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding and a member of President Obama's Advisory Faith Council. Thank you for giving us this interview. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, in the past decade, especially Muslims have engaged in outreach initiatives to help correct the perception of Islam in the West. You, for example, co-authored the book, Who Speaks for Islam? What a Billion Muslims Really Think. And this was based on six years of research and more than 50,000 interviews. So fortunately today, we're seeing Muslims on television and in films. But if you look at the general perception of Islam today, it would seem there's still a long road ahead. So what factors might be overwhelming or negating progress to change this perception? Could it be the political rhetoric, the media bias, violent quote-unquote radical Islam, a lack of long-term education about Islam, perhaps a combination or even other forces are at play? Thank you for the question. Uh, I do think that it's it's a, a number of um, factors. The first being that there is a well-funded, well-organized industry that has no other goal than to manufacture fear against Islam and Muslims. So the Islamophobia industry had access to more than $200 million between 2008 and 2013. You look at that, just that budget, and this is the budget of groups that do literally nothing but churn out material, whether it's in written form, video, uh, sometimes in, in the form of uh, on, on the street, uh, so-called protests targeting Islam and Muslims. You look at that that budget and you compare it to the budget of uh, groups that are working for tolerance or groups that are working for better understanding or education. Um, I mean, the numbers are uh, are so much bigger on the side of organized hate. That's one factor. We um, are out funded and out organized by hate um, groups that work for factual, accurate understanding are just not as um, lucrative. It's not as lucrative to do that than as it is to um, to be on the other side. So that's one factor. A second factor is, yes, media bias. Media bias is real. It's, it's outrageous. Um, in 2015, 90% of coverage of Islam and Muslims was negative, and this is now mainstream news media, not not the uh, not the fringe Islamophobic media. The thing is about the Islamophobic industry is it feeds into mainstream media, so mainstream media is 
is is heavily impacted by the Islamophobic industry. And then there's there's of course political rhetoric. Um, we know that around election years, anti-Muslim um, sentiment spikes, and the perceived connection between Islam and violence spikes in in the American public, even um, when there's no new uh, violent acts. In fact, violent acts, real violent acts, do less to spike the perception that Islam and, and violence are connected than um, they do less to, to grow that perception than, uh, than does um, a, a presidential campaign. So um, when you actually look at the facts, it's interesting to note that real Muslim uh, extremists are less harmful to the image of Islam than our uh, politicians who will do more to, to elevate the public's perception of human violence than an actual terrorist attack. So when you combine all of those things, it paints a pretty clear picture why we haven't made more progress despite what feels like a lot of work. So how do we change perceptions perhaps more quickly would, would it be through popular culture, stories, movie, TV? And what other areas would you personally like to see more Muslim presence? I definitely think popular culture is very important. And we, we need um, a lot more diversity in Hollywood, whether it's Muslim or other people of color. I also think that just uh, public education is extremely important. But aside from all of that, we actually have to find a way to call out, expose, and, and make clear that um, the Islamophobic industry <clears throat> is a harm to every American. Unless we cut off the poison, the body is never going to be healthy, no matter how, much, how many vitamins we give it. I mean, that's really the analogy I feel we have to understand. Um, Islamophobia is a cancer. It is a harm to and a danger to every American, not just Muslims. And when Americans are fed fear day in and day out, it's impossible to be healthy. It's impossible to um, overcome that, no matter how much exercise or vitamins or fruits and vegetables we eat. Uh, so there has to be a greater effort in, in challenging and calling out and stopping the, the churning uh, out of, of hate-filled material. And, you know, a lot of people might hear that and, and think that I'm suggesting um, curtailing freedom of speech, and actually I'm not at all. If you look at our society, there are certain things that we no longer say and do. There are certain words we no longer use to describe groups of people. There are certain cartoons that are no longer acceptable in our society, even though they were, say, 80 years ago. And we've decided as a society that we have evolved beyond that. Not because it's now illegal, it's just now considered morally repugnant. And so the question isn't, can we? but should we? And as a society collectively, to certain things, we've said, no, we should not. We should not speak that way, and we should not tolerate that kind of racism. And it is time for us to recognize as a society that Islamophobia is actually harming our democracy. And 
because of that, we have to say no to it as a society and evolve beyond it. To follow the same analogy you just said, in your 2016 TED Talk, you said a similar where you said Muslims, like all other Americans, aren't a tumor in the body of America. We are a vital organ. So speaking specifically about narrative and storytelling, what story could Muslims share commonly to break through the lack of empathy or negative perceptions? I think the stories that need to be told are are one of humanity, you know, and I, it, it's an interesting question because I think that a lot of us are tired of having to pure, uh, to prove our humanity to our fellow citizens. And a lot of us are tired of giving white America the ability to certify our humanity by, by appealing to them for that certification. Muslims are human beings. And, and the stories that I think we need to tell are ones of, of complexity, humanity, not, not perfect people. But we also need to tell a, another story that, that isn't just about why Muslims are good, but rather calling out unflinchingly, unapologetically, the double standard and the hypocrisy of requiring Muslims to prove their humanity. And I, I say that and I say that with love. I say that with compassion for um, the public that has been misinformed. We cannot coddle racism. We cannot accommodate it by continuing to appeal to it for, to certify our humanity. And, and I think that stopping short of calling it out, pointing it out, making people aware of their unintentional bias will, will never get us to where we need to be. Um, I think we need to apply some tough love and um, and treat people like they're adults not not treat them with with kids gloves uh, i mean the time for for all of that is completely over you've you've cited several studies in neuroscience which show when people are afraid at least three things happen uh, they become more accepting of authoritarianism conformity and prejudice so are there any other potential solutions you might provide to Muslims or other relevant organizations and groups to be more effective in changing perceptions or to rethink their strategy? I think there's a, so there's a number of things that, um, that have been shown to be effective. First is, is the, the strategy I just pointed out is actually calling things out has actually been shown in research to be more effective than continuing to accommodate people's prejudice and, um, and just try to, uh, you know, make them feel safe. So, um, so I think that just meeting people where they are and then gently guiding them to a different place um, is, is one narrative that I think we need to incorporate a lot more. Uh, another uh, really important strategy is, is coalition building. The more that people can work across color and creed uh, for a common goal of a more just society, the, the more likely they are to succeed. And then um, the third is, I think we have to do a lot better job of 
holding media accountable. The media is supposed to, it's supposed to inform the public. It's supposed, it's supposed to provide a way for democracy <clears throat> to happen by informing the citizenry. And when it stops doing that, when it starts to do the opposite by disinforming people, we, uh, we owe it to our, we owe it to democracy. We owe it to, to our democracy to, to make a correction to that. Um, so I, I think that people need to feel much more empowered to call for meetings with their local editorial boards to, um, to write in when, when they read something that's, uh, that's blatantly biased. But before they can do that, they have to educate themselves on what that bias looks like and, um, and how to spot it. Quoting another study you use, which shows that when subjects were exposed to news stories that were negative about Muslims, they became more accepting of military attacks on Muslim countries and policies that curtail the rights of Muslims, such as American Muslims. The media, as you said, often focuses on sensational, violent, and negative stories of which the Muslim world has managed to offer over the past few decades. This, uh, unfortunately, dominates the news to the exclusion of man many positive stories, which are not reported, leading to clearly skewed perceptions of the Muslim world. So what else can be done to address this uh, bias? Well, I think a couple things. First, <clears throat> communities have to learn more about how the media works and learn how to pitch positive stories, um, develop relationships with editors and reporters so those stories are heard and, and increase the chances of them being reported on. Now, that's the responsibility of the community, but there's also a responsibility on media outlets to look for those stories, to listen when those stories are brought to them, and, and to actually report on them. This, I mean, I, I think that it's really, uh, it's, it's the responsibility of, of both sides. I have seen situations where communities do everything I just said. Um, it's a compelling story. It's, it's timely. It's interesting. Um, there's beautiful, beautiful visuals that are possible, and yet they are still ignored by their, um, you know, their, even their local media. And um, on the other side, I've also seen media try to write some of these more um, complex human stories and, and find it hard to, uh, to break into the community and, and find the right people to talk to. So I, I do think it's the responsibility of both sides, but it, it has to become a priority both for, for communities around the country as well as media outlets. Given your work, given your extensive work with polling, I wanted to take this opportunity to help our audience understand polling better as numbers are thrown out all the time just a couple of years ago the pew forum polled egyptians and 64 percent said the death penalty should be the punishment for apostasy leaving the faith despite the neighboring countries have only about five to ten percent who believe the same thing to make things even more complicated the same poll also shows 75% of Egyptians want complete religious liberty. Given this contradiction 
which really shows, I would say, the lived experience of religious people. What are common mistakes or misunderstanding people often have when they read or cite polls? So that's a really good question. I'm glad you've, uh, you, you know, you've asked about how to, how to consume polls in, um, in a critical way. So first of all, when you're, when you're looking at a poll, the first question you ask is, was the, um, was the sample representative? Now, in the case of Pew, the, in, the answer is yes. They do very high-quality polling, and their samples are representative. The way you know a sample is representative is not by how large the sample size is. This is a very popular misconception. People will often say, oh, that's just a sample of 1,000, and this other poll has a sample of 80,000, so it must be more representative. That's completely wrong. Representation actually has very little to do with the, the how large a sample is. It, it has to do with the quality of the sample and how it was selected. So a representative sample is one where every citizen in a country has a chance and an equal chance to have been selected for survey. Now, if I only, um, if, if my uh, sample consists of people on Facebook that just decided to answer the survey, that is not a representative sample because you didn't give every single person an equal chance of getting, um, of getting chosen for the sample. Not everyone saw your ad, not everyone has Facebook, not everyone has internet, not, not everyone has electricity. Right. Um, it's a terrible way to do it. Even if you have 80,000 people in your so-called sample, what Pew does and what Gallup does, the, the company I used to work for, and what a good polling firm will do is they will use methods that select households for interviews at random. Therefore, everyone has an equal chance of being selected. And so a thousand people are more representative than 80,000, you know, done on Facebook. So that's, that's one thing to just always ask to begin with. The second question to ask is how was the question phrased? And what other questions in the survey help to explain what people might, may have meant? Now, in the case of this question, which gets brought up uh, quite a bit, especially by liberal Islamophobes um, or so-called liberal Islamophobes, is it's interesting that, as you said, neighboring countries don't, don't hold the same view. So it's something peculiar to Egypt. It's not something peculiar to Muslims. So that's one thing to, to keep in mind is, is this something I'm going to generalize over Islam, Muslims, and you know everyone um, from the faith, or is this something that we we need to kind of figure out what's going on in Egypt? Um, the question I believe was one of asking people a theological question and then being interpreted in a very political way. Egyptians, as an Egyptian, I am an Egyptian. We are taught in our traditional um, Islamic education that anyone who leaves the faith in theory, their pen the penalty is death, which sounds extremely right. on right uh, a violation of religious freedom. Of course, I personally don't believe that that is a correct interpretation of Islamic law, but it is the conventional way that people are taught. And so, when they're asked, they basically recite what they were told or taught somewhere along the way. Now, is this actually ever implemented? Has that, is that the law in Egypt? Do people actually get executed for leaving a faith? They actually do not. They are not, um, this is also 
not something that happens to people and even in a in, in the case of vigilante violence against people now i'm not saying it never happens but that is not like a widespread crisis that egyptians are undergoing so it is a very theoretical response based on how people have been educated in uh you know according to a certain medieval pre-modern interpretation. Now, I will add that that interpretation is usually understood um, in a pre-modern context where leaving the faith actually is assumed to mean leaving, um, is, is like an act of treason, is, is joining an enemy force to fight against um, your previous community. It is, it's more of a, a political change of sides rather than um, simply a, a question of freedom of conscience. But those two things have been conflated and people are understanding it this way. So I think this is a reflection of how Egyptians are educated on this question rather than, um, you know, something that was deeply thought about and act and is being acted on in any way, shape, or form. Now, as someone who holds a different point of view in my own religious understanding, I would love to change the way Egyptians are educated about this. I, I want a different conversation to happen in religious circles and religious educational institutions that re-examines this question um, and re-understands it in a way that I think is actually more authentic to the spirit of Islam. But am I going to succeed in trying to make that happen by approaching this question with humility and compassion? Or will I succeed in reforming this understanding by ridiculing and demonizing these communities? And um, that's where I really have a, a very hard time with so-called liberal Islamophobia, because it is all about feeling superior rather than any real concern for these communities. Demonizing and dehumanizing these communities by putting out these whole findings so out of context does absolutely nothing to improve the situation and does absolutely nothing to even empower the folks on the ground trying to make change indigenously. All it does is to say we're more civilized and they're barbaric and in fact hurts and, and feeds into reactionary forces in the region. What impact from your experience have polls and other data metrics been in changing perceptions and attitudes, do they, does it change people's minds or is it better to deal with perceptions through relationships and personal interaction? Well, I, I don't think it's either or, and I absolutely think relationships and per personal interactions are very important, but polls do actually also help to change perceptions. Otherwise, my whole life's work is useless. So, um, That's not the case. <laughs> I, I certainly hope not. So one, one study actually found that sample of the American public's perception of Muslims and specifically um, the dehumanization of Muslims was improved by reading an article which contained data, polling data, that said that Muslims admired certain things about American culture. And that after reading this article that contained this data, people had a more humanized view of Muslims. Um, so no, data actually can 
work. It actually can help bring people's opinion, uh, perceptions to a more accurate place. And relationships are incredibly important as well. So I do think it's both. Any final thoughts or advice you want to give for better understanding and utilizing poll data? I think that poll data always has to be contextualized. I don't think you can throw around a number and think you understand a community. Um, it's important that polling data is interpreted by people familiar with that community, familiar with its history, familiar with um, modern debates, so that it can be understood properly. Um, I think the number, that these numbers that you cite um, about Egyptian culture are a perfect example of that, where um, someone like um, Bill Maher, Sam Harris throws these around as proof of Muslim barbarism without really understanding um, the full history and the full background. In another poll from the Pew, around 24% of Americans self-identify themselves as non-affiliated, non-religious, believing in some form of spirituality and the divine, but not really identifying with one particular religion. And Within that, if you're under the age of 30, interestingly, there's a 66% chance you're in this non-affiliated category. Why do you think there's a sudden increase in the non-affiliated uh, group? So, it's a really good question, and um, I'm not sure that I'm, I'm sure what the answer is. Uh, interestingly, Muslim Americans tend to be, um, young Muslim Americans tend to be actually as likely as their elders to be religious. So, or, or to claim that religion is an important part of their daily life. Um, now, what that, what, what that means for them and how they practice is a different story. Um, they are less likely to attend a mosque, but they are just as likely to say religion is important to them. Um, unlike their peers, their age peers, their, you know, fellow generational peers in other faiths, where um, young people um, who are not Muslim are, are far less likely than their elders to say religion is important. Now, why is religion losing importance in, in the lives of young people um, in the general public? I mean, there's lots of reasons I can think of, but it would all be speculation. I don't, I don't really study that. What I do study are, are American uh, Muslims. And um, in that case, they are much more likely to be alienated from a mosque, but not from their faith itself. Uh, they, um, they, at least compared to their elders, uh, remain devoted to, to the ethical framework of Islam, even if the way they're practicing may be different. You were a member of President Barack Obama's inaugural Advisory Council on Faith-Based Neighborhood Partnerships. Could you talk about your experience and how you were able to help increase more faith-based alliances? So as a, as a member of the President's Advisory Council, I think my, my biggest accomplishment was actually to help mobilize and, and then document the contributions of American Muslims to, to community service. And the president had called on the nation to 
serve in their community to alleviate the impact of what at that time was um, really an economic crisis in our country. And I worked with community leaders, um, both local and national, to put together service projects. And um, our goal was that at least a quarter of them would be in cooperation with other faith communities and that we would um, we would come up at the very end with uh, at the end of the summer um, with a thousand hours a thousand days of service across the country and my promise to the community uh, was that if we could get if we could meet those two goals a thousand days of service a quarter at least done in in cooperation with another faith that I would deliver this report to the president myself. Sure. And um, so people put the word out. I mean, it was, I mean, people used everything from Friday khutbas to Facebook. And when we collected all of the projects at the end of the summer, it was more than 3,000 days of service. And close to 95% of them were actually done with another faith community. You know, I don't take any credit for that other than counting that this was happening and compiling it. And in fact, I did hand it to the president in a report. Um, and it was, it made up the lion's share of the projects that were, were collected by the White House that summer. I mean, it was the Muslims, the, one of the smallest faith communities who had actually done the most service that summer. Uh, and I... I tell you that story and I share it because I think a, a lot of the problem is that we ourselves um, don't know what else is going on. I was surprised at um, the fact that there were more than 30 free Muslim clinics around the country. I had no idea about that. I, I was surprised at some of the projects that were being carried out, um, alliances and cooperation between Muslim charities and Native American um, schools on reservations. I had no idea that was happening. Um, that there were educational programs against human trafficking in our urban centers here in America led by Muslims. I didn't know that. Um, that there were projects across the country uh, to feed the hungry and to clothe the poor, um, to, to provide toiletries and, um, and other sanitary products for for the homeless etc and and the list goes on and on and on the greening of uh, of mosques the cleaning up of highways and had the president not made this call to service um a lot of these projects were already happening some were inspired by the president's call but had had we not compile and count we wouldn't have known and most of these projects had no idea other projects were happening that were just like them in other parts of the country. When we compiled everything and I showed it back to the community, I said, this is what you guys just do. This is who you are. People were like blown away. Their own picture of themselves, their own perception of who they are as a community. It's so skewed just as much by the media as anyone else. And even though they might be serving, they, they think they're the only ones and they're not. They're actually the norm. They're, they, this is what it means to be a Muslim American. So on various occasions, on various occasions, you've made the distinction that while you had access to the Obama administration and even other relevant organizations, 
it didn't always lead to direct influence. Access doesn't always mean influence, as you say. Yes. So what advice would you give to future leaders to make a tremendous difference and even eventually garner attention at the national level? You're absolutely right. I often point out that one thing I learned is that um, access doesn't equal influence. And what I mean by that is just having a seat at the table does not mean you are going to influence anything. What you need to do is combine access with leverage, and then you get influence. Access with something to, something to offer and, and something to take away that equals influence, not just being there, not just occupying space, not just warming your chair and speaking out of your mouth. That's not enough. If you don't have organized people and resources behind you, then what you say is really not going to do anything. And I saw that so clearly in the way that other communities came to the table. They came to the table with, you know, the ability to mobilize 20 million voters. That's influence when you combine access to with the ability to mobilize 20 million voters, that equals influence. Coming to the table and just being there, that's access without any influence. So what I think Muslims, Muslim Americans generally, not all of us, but many of us don't understand is the difference between access and influence. And we think access equals influence and it does not. So we don't come to the table having done that homework of mobilizing at the grassroots of organized money and organized people. And um, in the absence of that, all that wonderful access we had during the Obama administration really did not amount to a whole lot of impact on policy. And I hope that these four years of not having any access, obviously, or at least most of us don't have access, nor do we seek it, we can do that homework. We can do that organizing on the ground so that if and when we ever have access again, we come prepared and utilize that access to make real impact that, um, that makes a positive difference in, in our country. You've said that while Muslims in the West, especially America, have been keen towards building interfaith bridges, they've unfortunately, even amongst themselves, have not been as effective in working with Blacks and Latinos. Right. Um, why is that? So, yeah, one of our weak, our blind spots, I think, in, in our community among Arab and uh, Asian Muslims, Arab and Asian American Muslims, is, is that we have framed our outreach in, in, in terms of interfaith. And what interfaith often means, especially in suburban community where a lot of Arab and Asian Americans live is is white churches and synagogues and so that's how people understand interfaith and where they haven't done as much work or any work is in interfaith among people of color um, and intercultural um, alliances it's incredibly important um, that targeted communities, which are now um, people of color across religious backgrounds, work together. And that Muslim communities, especially Arab and Asian, forge those relationships. 
and uh, and expand what it means to work um, with other communities of faith. There, there was a sense among many people, whether conscious or unconscious, um, in the Arab and Asian American communities, where where they had a uh, sort of a, this aspirational whiteness that if they worked hard enough they made enough money had a nice enough house good enough job that they would be white they would they would enter the um hierarchy of of racial um you know sort of ascend the racial hierarchy and be and be um honorary whites and 9-11 kind of disabused people that, or should have, and then Trump really disabused people of that. So I, I hope that the people have kind of gotten the memo that that is not, um, A, not going to happen, and B, should not even be a goal. And recognize that in our faith and, and in our prophet's example, he relinquished privilege in order to stand for truth and to be aligned with the vulnerable. Um, and that's exactly what Muslims should always do, rather than run after privilege and turn away from both truth and the vulnerable. So, um, you know, in some ways Trump is a blessing because it forces, he forces and his phenomenon, his, the wave that brought him forces the reality on Muslims that our faith and, and just reality on the ground should make it clear that we need to align with the marginalized, the vulnerable, and stand with, with justice and truth rather than run after an aspiration um, that really will never happen. So, like you said, speaking about intra-Muslim, Muslim-to-Muslim relationships, it, in these times, how can Muslims better support each other? I, I mean, this is such an important issue. I think one of, um, one of the biggest challenges Muslims are facing today are, it is internal fragmentation. And, and I think if we can overcome that, we will be so much stronger. How do, how should communities overcome fragmentation? It's, it's like a, its own field of study. I think that learning about each other's history is essential. I think that working together to, to meet a common goal is essential. I actually think collaboration on a local level needs to be built into how um, regional organizations operate. So I've, I've actually recommended to, you know, umbrella organizations that say serve the needs of Muslims in all of Chicago or all of Northern California to have each major mosque appoint a chief collaboration officer whose only job is to find ways to collaborate with other mosques and other communities. And to set up a fund where you can only get the money for a grant for a project if you're working across, across communities. We have to incentivize collaboration. We have to value collaboration. We need to reward collaboration. 
if we want it to happen. We, we can't just passively hope that one day it will happen. We have to work proactively to make sure that it does happen. Um, and I think that maybe some of these practical um, nudges in the right direction will eventually bring about a stronger community. Um, but it, a lot of this is deep and it's, and it's, uh, it's going to take generations because it, it's baggage. It's baggage from American culture. It's baggage from cultures um, from other you know, parts of the world that, that, are, uh, that have been impacted by white supremacist thinking. And, um, and we have to overcome that. So turning to the future now, uh, what guidance would you give to help Americans and the world generally move beyond just advisory and consulting-based faith partnerships to more participatory and action-oriented faith leadership? I think the first step in becoming faith-based leaders is to recognize the moment we're in in our country's history, that we are not victims. We are, in fact, people who are being called on by their faith to play an incredibly important role to save our country from itself. And while we may be the first to feel it, you know, like canaries in the coal mine, the toxic climate of fear and disinformation is a threat to everyone. And so we have to think of ourselves in a different way, first of all, as people who have something to offer, have something to give, an important role to play, because we are inheritors of an ethical framework that calls us to stand for justice. And, and so that's the first step. The second step is, is to do the introspection, the self-purification and the self-resistance to be in the right spiritual space to be able to play that role, to divorce ourselves of ego, to free ourselves of the wrong kind of ambition. To, to find that psychological space of being a true servant leader. The third step is to organize across color and creed. I mean, this is just extremely important. We, we have to never allow ourselves to feel isolated and to reach out to other impacted communities and work together. And then we have to start to um, become involved politically. Um, that starts with voting, but it, it, it's so much more than that. Um, running for office, um, working on campaigns, all of these things uh, are now really necessities. We have to take our country back, but it requires the, the, the homework, the, the foundational pieces that I explained to begin with. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Candid Insights. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media for updates on future episodes. If you've already subscribed, please leave us a rating or review. It does help new people find the podcast. I'm Sahil Badruddin, your host. And for a transcript of this interview and others, visit my website at sahilbadruddin.com.